Awesome. Welcome. Um, I would highly encourage the app for following along with our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Let me encourage for those watching, either in person or online, um, you do not have to fast for 21 days straight. I had a pastor write me yesterday. He was, how are you doing this for 21 days? I said, I do seasons where I'm fasting specific meals or fasting a specific thing. Right now, I've decided for, to fast the Lions uh, for the rest of the football season. So, um, of course playoffs, they always fast the lions, never mind. Um, but I would encourage the app. And so I had a pastor write me and it, you know, almost, it was almost frantic in his message to me. He says, I saw the pictures of your app. How did you create that through planning center? And he just, he sent me this long message. 15 minutes later, he goes, "Never mind. I met with my staff. They know how to do this, and this is what they've been trying to tell me to do with our app. So um, it's a great way to follow along, to get the videos, to get the, the prayer points for every single day. Janice did such an amazing job bringing prayer points together. And I don't know about you, but I've just been enjoying just calling out to God this past week and just letting God search our hearts, working with repentance and worship. It's been an amazing start. If you have your Bibles, uh, 2 Samuel, um, it's right after 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 10 is what we are going to land on. And today um, is gonna be, it's going to be a little bit of a heavier day of the three th- Three messages thus far, this will be, this will feel like the heaviest. Some of you love that. Uh, some of you are like, I just long for the heavy messages. I just want to be beat up in church. And for that, um, I've got a great counselor for you to see. So, um, yeah, I don't think you come to church to get beat up. And we're not going to do that today. But today we're going to deal with a bit of a heavier approach to hope. And a message that I've titled, The Erosion of Hope. The, the Erosion of Hope. And I'm going to read... Um, out of 2 Samuel, um, the context of this is David, uh, best name of the Bible outside of Jesus. David um, has become king and he is starting to kind of reconcile, bring some things together. Chapter nine is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture, the story of Mephibosheth, there's a mouthful. Um, and that's a great, great uh, story to read. But chapter 10, David is actually wanting to reach out to a fellow kingdom specifically a king who honored him, a king who was there for him, um, had passed away and the man's son became king. And so he wanted to reach out and to console and to help this fellow royalty. It says, after this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hunan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hunan, son of Nahash. His father dealt loyally, loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to counsel him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hunan, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hunan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beard, uh, half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told to David, uh, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Such a weird story. Such a wildly weird story. David sends messengers to go console. And in the ear of the king, he has people begin to say, you know, I know this seems like a kind act, but I bet you there's hidden meaning behind it. 
I bet just something's taking place behind this kind act. It's not just a kind act. And so the king has them shave off half the beard. Imagine if I were showed up today with half of a beard, y'all would look at me weird and go to a different church. Um, shaving off half the beard, and then he cut off their garments at the hips. He just wanted to humiliate these servants and by issue, humiliate David and Israel. And now we've got a mess on our hands. This morning, the erosion of hope. If there's anything that I have watched erode hope in today's church that I see so prevalent in the culture today, it is this issue of cynicism and having a cynical heart or what we might say in the church, a cynical spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, today we just cast our eyes upon you, the author and the perfecter of our faith and ask that you would help us to understand you in a deeper way and through that to help understand ourselves. Help us understand each other. Lord, you are the hope of the world. You're the hope that we trust in. And yet in the midst of this, there are things that would love to erode the hope, the expectation of greatness of what you wanna do in and through us, God. There is, Lord, a spirit of this age that just wants to erode every single bit of us and to sour our hearts toward one another, to sour our hearts toward any expectation, to sour our hearts toward any, any semblance of sensing victory. Help us to see you, to know you, and to expect great things because of you. So today, guard our hearts, challenge our minds, convict us in ways that you wanna convict us, call us to a place of repentance, and help us, God, to walk out of this place, God, people built up in you and becoming more and more like you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. It was uh, some years ago that uh, I got into a car accident that was not my fault. I don't care what the other lady said. It was not my fault. And I'll describe it to you. I was on a street uh, I know I'm very familiar with, Van Dyke Road, there just north of Detroit. And I was wanting to turn left at 21 Mile Road. Now, what you got to know about the Detroit area, specifically in the suburbs, is traffic is... If you ever wanna get used to LA traffic, go over to the west side and just go around the Sterling Heights, Detroit metro area and you just get up to here with traffic. And so traffic was all backed up, but I needed to turn left and go on 21 mile back to the church. And I'm trying to make myself sound holy. I was just going back to, to, to the church because that's where my parents were working. I think I was a junior in, I think in college, junior or senior. And so I got into the left-hand turn lane and I thought I'll just travel up because I'm turning left. That's what you do, you get into the left-hand turn lane. And what had happened was up here, as I get, just as I get in the left-hand turn lane, traffic stopped enough and let this lady get out from, through the traffic and instead of merging in, she gets into the left-hand turn lane. And what she does, because I could see it all, is she's looking over her shoulder like this and she's trying to speed up so she can merge in traffic. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there watching her come at me. And I can do nothing. I've got backed up traffic here. I've got passing traffic here. And I'm just watching her rev up and she just hit the gas and she is coming quickly at me. Now, back in the 90s, y'all remember pull out stereos in your cars? Anybody have a pull out stereo? Some of you are like, what do you mean? Back in the 90s, we were nervous about theft of our radios and our cars. And so they created these radios so that you can actually pull them out of your dashboard. You took them into the house or you did what I did. You were lazy and you put them underneath your seat. She hit me so hard head on that she sent my pullout radio over my right shoulder into the back seat. Devastated, 
The best vehicle I've ever owned, my 1989 Chevy Blazer. Black and red, the only way Chevy Blazers were meant to be. Oh, I love that car. Her name was, her name was Mildred. Um, loved, loved my vehicle. Yes, I named my vehicle. So, um, you know, I, I'm startled, I'm stunned. Obviously she's startled because she thought she could merge in with traffic. And we get out and she is blaming me for being in the left-hand turn lane. I'm blaming her because she's coming the wrong direction, not turning left, but she's trying to merge in where she should have dealt with that a little bit of a different way. And so we're just kind of going back and forth. It's your fault. It's your fault. I'm like, I'm in the left-hand turn lane. You got in the left-hand turn lane too early. And so it is just a mess. The police show up and he's hearing both sides here. And I'm just frustrated because I know what I was doing. I know all the information and I know where I was supposed to go and I was in the right spot. And she is saying all of the same things. And so there's just this argument. I can tell the police is trying to figure out who to believe. And meanwhile, all of a sudden I hear these voices off to the side standing on the grass saying, officer, we saw the whole thing. It's her fault. And I'm like, there is a prophet in Israel right there. There's a prophet speaking out. And so he went over and I mean, we're talking. It was honestly obvious. She was going the, she was driving and speeding up in a lane that was not an acceleration lane. But it's, it boggled my mind for years. I'm like, how could she, with all of the given information, ever argue that she was in the right? I will tell you exactly why, because it's a psychological term called the confirmation bias. What is the confirmation bias? It's simply this. It is the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs. It is the tendency to take new information that you didn't have, but you bring it into your situation and you only look at it as a way to confirm what you already believe. She got new information. There's a Chevy Blazer in her way and the Chevy Blazer was in her way and interrupted what she was going to do. And so she didn't see anything that she had done wrong. In her mind, I've done nothing wrong. The new information is here. There's an accident and I'm going to look at it only confirming what I believe. And now we could say, okay, that's, that doesn't seem like a huge deal, but this is something that I think has infiltrated the church. It infiltrates our lives. It's one of the reasons, I know this sounds silly, it's one of the reasons why I have a hard time watching a, a, a sporting event that I care about with a team that I care about with somebody from the opposite side. It's rare that you will see me catch, watching a Michigan-Michigan State game with Michigan State fans because we keep losing. So... I, I can't watch it. I can't take it. You know what? Two years ago, I tried watching the Michigan-Notre Dame. No, three years ago. Michigan-Notre Dame game with a Notre Dame fan. And I swore I'd never do that ever, ever, ever again. Why? Because when I watch games and when something happens, a penalty flag is thrown against my team, I have a bias because I can see the play and I can see why that should not have happened. And I'm with somebody who has the same information, but their bias over here is different. And so they have a different argument. And again, you're like sports, okay, car accidents, but this happens all the time. I watch this with young couples because they both come into marriage with a bias. They, got, they come in with this idea of what family is supposed to look like, what the marriage is supposed to look like. And all of a sudden they get new information and begin to act upon only what they've known. And it causes sometimes um, some fights, sometimes some frustrations between the married couple because the confirmation bias, new information, but I only look at it to, to build up what I already believe instead of being objective and say, what does the information actually tell us? We do this in the church. 
that we hear a scripture, and instead of saying to ourselves, what does this say about Jesus? What does it say about the kingdom of God? Many times, I've watched church people, we hear one scripture, one verse, and instead of looking at what the verse actually says, we only take that and we apply it to what confirms our own bias. And I'm afraid that that has leaked into the church, leaked into the kingdom of God, it has leaked into our relationships, and instead of seeing each other through each other's eyes, instead of understanding each other, sometimes even looking objectively, sometimes even asking, having the audacity to ask, could I be wrong? I know we don't want to do that. But instead of asking that, we begin to inflict our opinions and our beliefs on others at the expense of looking at some objective. And what gets even worse, and this is what I read, confirmation bias gets worse when we begin to uphold only the things, the evidence that helps us, and we undervalue evidence that could disprove us. I watch this all the time. I watch it in the political realm. I watch it in the relational realm. I watch people respond to each other out of a bias and they inflict that bias. And because of that bias, that bias can actually stir us into having a cynical heart. And I believe that is one of the default mode, if not the default mode of our culture and specifically our church culture nowadays is to have a heart of a cynic. To be cynic or to be cynical means to be contemptuously distrustful of human nature and motives. To be contemptuously distrustful of human nature and motives. In other words, a cynic will manipulate people's narratives and storylines based upon judging their Motives. Have you ever had anybody judge your motives before? Have you anybody ever questioned you, not based upon the facts, but based upon they have judged your motives instead of even asking you about it? I hear that all the time as a pastor because people will come talk to me and say this, that person didn't mean what they, they didn't mean what they said when they told me that I'm sorry for what I did. I know they apologize, but I don't think they truly meant it. I'm like, how do you know they didn't truly meant it? I just know. Or, That person did this to get back at me. They did this on purpose. Okay, how do you know they did this on purpose? I just know. I bet you that's just who they are because their parents were like that and and they must be like that. Everybody seems to know the intention of everybody's heart. Everybody seems to know what everybody means. I know why they did what they did. And we get to this place where we're constantly cynical and distrusting anything and everything. And it's no wonder why hope in the church is eroded. And when people come to the church, I'm telling you, this should be the place where they find hope. But for unfortunately, we've got to this place in the American church where we no longer celebrate hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus is great as long as it confirms exactly what I wanted to confirm. And that's where these 21 days of prayer and fasting come in because I truly believe that the more time we spend with the truth, and when I say the word truth, I'm not talking about little T truth, I'm talking about big T truth. That big T, who, what, what are we talking about? See, truth isn't a, an understanding or a simple concept. Truth is a person, and that person's name is Jesus. He said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the more time we spend with the truth, the more you will not buy with, into the lies. But the less time you spend with the truth, the more that you will buy into the lies that are around you, or even sometimes the lies within you. A cynical heart develops a lie. It develops narratives for everybody else and dictates who they are and what they are all about. Now, there's a difference between critical thinking and cynical thinking. I'm not doing this like the critical thinkers are here and the cynics are over here. Don't read into that whatsoever. Just realize, had a little mini panic. 
the sheep and the goats. There's a difference between thinking critically about something and thinking through something. And then also, and then having that critical, that, excuse me, that cynical mindset. Cynics, they lean heavily negative. They expect disappointment. They probe for the worst. And when there's nothing, ne- nothing positive on the surface, they will find something negative underneath it. That's where cynics go. They, they're heavily negative. They expect disappointment. And when there's nothing negative whatsoever, they will try to probe for the worst. I've met with them. I get messages from them. I promise you, they're going to message me after this service. It just happens that way. Or, Pastor, is this because I made a comment at you that you preached this whole message? Yes, you are that important in my life that I gotta form an entire sermon just about you. But what is that? What is that? That's confirmation bias. That is, I have got a bias and I hear something and I take all the information, I toss out anything objective and I only hold on to that which confirms. I'm just trying to find something to confirm. If you wanna find something to confirm, go on YouTube, I promise. Whatever you believe and whatever you wanna believe, you will find somebody to confirm it there. It's flypaper for weirdness. But I'm here to tell you that we can get into such a place where every kind act, every whole act, every healing act, a cynic can come in and become doubtful and declare there's another agenda at play. You know what this reminded me of? Back, I think it was in the summer, I saw a picture of all of the Bethel worship artists come over from California. I saw a huge group of them. They were in the White House specifically. They were in the Oval Office and there was a a picture of them praying over President Trump. And as, as fast as that picture appeared on social media, the cynics appeared too. I remember the talk I had with my wife about it. And listen, I, I will take a direct stand against Christian nationalism. I, I, I cannot stand Christian nationalism. I'm not about it, and this message is not going to be about that. But I will say this. As I sat back, and my wife and I talked, and we've had our differences with, I think, every president that we've ever had, I've had my differences with them in one way or another. Sometimes small, sometimes large, but that's just the way it is with leadership. And it, is it, we're always going to have some differences that are out there. But I'm telling you what, if the president of the United States asked me to come pray for him, I don't care who's in that seat. I don't care, I don't care the person in that seat. I would go and I would pray. I was asked uh, a couple years ago, in fact, I'm, I was told that only once, maybe once in a lifetime, you might get asked to go pray in the Senate chambers and do the invocation. I got asked twice. And so each time I went and did a selfie in the Senate chamber. Margaret O'Brien brought me in. She's such an amazing woman. I, she's a friend. And every time I posted it, I just kept my eye on Facebook that day because underneath it, 95% of the people are like, Pastor Dave, that's cool. What an honor. You must be humbled. I'm like, I am. I can't believe you got to do that. I I can't believe it either. I can't believe you wore a suit. I can't believe it either, man. The list was going on and on and on. But you know what I kept deleting throughout the day was the 5%. So when you went there, did you only go there because of? Well, you were there because of this. Did you, did you get to walk into the governor's office and say this? It's just, it's a blessing of deleting. Hallelujah for delete buttons. Delete, delete, delete. I just don't need it. I don't need to be there. But when I saw what happened in the Oval Office and what I saw coming out on Twitter and Facebook and people making a mockery of what is a beautiful moment, could politics manipulate it? Absolutely. But you know what? If somebody asks me to pray, I will never turn away somebody when it comes to people needing prayer. And I don't care what level they're at. And God help us as a church when we can't celebrate a moment and we look at it and we manipulate it and we turn it into the confirmation bias we want. 
Boy, in my first couple years, this was a hard one. In fact, I'll give you something from my first two weeks here as a pastor. My first sermon series, I, I was actually wanted to preach it as a youth pastor in Midland, and it was called The Names of God. And I decided, you know what? I felt like the Holy Spirit told me, it's not for the youth group. This is for the church that just hired you. And so I just put it away until I came here in April of 2009. And some of you remember, I did a series called The Names of God. And then I remember it was Tammy Flick, Tammy Flick, just a wonderful woman of God. She came to me and she said this. She says, who told you about the word? I'm like, what, what word? She goes, it's so exciting because during the transitional time, somebody gave a prophetic word that God would restore his name at this church. And I dropped my jaw. I bet you I cried because that's just what I do. And I'm just like, man, it just confirmed why God told me what he told me in Midland, Michigan to wait till I got here. And the same day, somebody showed up, I need to meet with Pastor Dave. And they sat across from me and said, why are you preaching what you're preaching? I'm like, what do you mean? Did you even know about the word? I bet you the board told you what you had to preach based off of that prophetic word. And that just confirms that the board is in full control of what's going on here and you're nothing more than a puppet pastor. I'm like, what just happened? I'm like, I've got no strings to hold me down. No, I didn't do that. But I sat back in this moment. And is that what the body of Christ that we've come to? That we've got a wonderful act and we immediately go toward the negative. We immediately begin to write everybody else's storylines and we make judgments, not, not upon what we know, but what we assume other people are thinking. I love what Paul um, Paul Miller says, he says, cynicism begins with the wry assurance that everybody has an angle and behind every silver lining is a cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaging, loving, and hoping. Okay. You wanna know what's worse than being a cynic? <laughs> it's infecting other people with it. We are a people of hope and the flavor of our lives that should be left in the palate of people's hearts ought to be hope. I love the words of F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer, somebody approached him and asked him a question um, about you know, what, 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 what do you do when you see people fall into sin? What do you do when you see people fall into sin? And he begins to, he gives like these three steps before you, you ever become a cynic of what has just transpired in your life. He gives these three amazing things. He says, number one, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Listen, well, I would not have sinned. That's not, well, it's probably because that's not your brand of sin. If it was a different brand, it might've been different. Number two, we don't know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. Some of us have made judgment calls on so many steps or missteps, and we don't even know the situation. Number three, we also don't know uh, what we would have done if we were in the same circumstances. Now, again, you might be way more spiritual than me, and I know that you're the fourth member of the Trinity here, but... I wonder if we have made so many judgment calls, not because that we've hated people, it's just we're trying to make ourselves look something that we truly are not. It is amazing the ugliness that I have seen in the church world when we give cynicism a free pass. It is the ugliness that spoils the flavor of the kingdom in people's hearts. Please understand that believing the best in others doesn't mean we live in ignorance, 
but it lives from a place of choosing to have our hearts in the proper place. I'm not asking you just to, well, does it mean that we just have to accept every lick of sin? I didn't say anything like that. Does it mean that we don't have to have boundaries when we're in relationship with people? No, you should have. Please have boundaries for Pete's sake. You will be a saner. Um, does it mean that I can't block people on Facebook? I do it. It's fun. Go for it. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is this, is that you can believe the best in people and not give them full access to your heart. You can believe the best in people and not give them full access to your life. You can believe the best in people and you can still be friends on social media while hiding them. You can still believe the best in people and still have a different opinion. You can be the, believe the best in people and have differences in theology. But you can believe the best in people and still treat people like human beings. Why? Because your heart is in the proper place. This is what brings us finally in these last few minutes to 2 Samuel 10. When we look at what has happened, we see that a whole situation has literally gone into bad places, we'll say it nice. It has gone into terrible places because of cynicism. David sends people, a messengers, to represent him to go console a king. You just lost your father. You just lost somebody important. And he treated me well, I don't wanna treat you well. And so my guess is he wouldn't have just uh, sent people to console verbally, he would have sent gifts. He would have honored that king. He also is starting a new monarchy, so there would have been just a lot of cultural things that would have gone on there. And what happened was, is this king saw this and immediately in his ear, the cynics are speaking. I bet you David's scouting this place out. I bet you he's here in the guise of having gifts, guise of having consolation, guise of having a, a place to just share kind of what seems like his heart, but the reality is he wants to tear us down. He wants to destroy us. And if you begin to read further in the chapter, you begin to see that actions begin to take place all because of a simple biased opinion. They were, they were they had a biased thing that all these other nations have to be our enemies. If, no, if someone's not like us, they're automatically an enemy. And therefore, if that enemy comes to us offering something, there's automatically something there. So they convinced the king to take an action based off of a bias, based off of what was confirming their own cynical hearts. And so they took David's men, shaved off half their beard, cut off half their clothes, sent them away. And David says, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, which I find quite funny. I didn't even wanna look at you guys yet. Have those things grow back and then we'll talk. But it was more just to recover their own shame. And they come back and, and in verse six, it says that the Ammonites became like a stench to David. Something just soured his heart. And we know why. And so that if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that the Ammonites all of a sudden begin to raise up armies. They begin to hire armies to go and attack David because we got to hit him first before he hits us. And they go, they attack and they end up getting absolutely annihilated. In verse 18, they lost over 40,000 men based off of one decision of cynical thinking. 40,000 plus lives because of cynicism. Wrap your head around this. Kingdoms, differences, people, cities that could have really existed, cities that could have honored one another, and yet they looked at each other, and because of one cynical thought, everything breaks apart. You know what this reminds me? It reminds me how the devil works. You know how the devil works? He gets us fighting with people that we should be fighting for. 18, excuse me, 40,000 
destroyed from a false narrative. So what I want to do in these last couple minutes here is just give you some steps to help with cynical hearts. And I'm telling you what, I don't think, I don't think a sermon is worth anything if it doesn't preach to the preacher because if there's anybody that can deal with cynicism, it is this man up here. And I've been praying all week long, Lord, search my own heart, which is what brings me to number one. If you really wanted to deal with a cynical heart, number one, write this down. Deal with your own heart before you take up issue with somebody else's thoughts. Deal with your own heart before you take up issue with somebody else's thoughts. It almost felt weird typing it out, but some of us have not, have had issues with other people that has nothing to do with necessarily anything that they've ever done. We are actually trying to dictate what they've been thinking and we have formed a narrative and a storyline around it and all of a sudden we've got hate, we've got things within our hearts. I love our 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, we know it as the love chapter and toward the tail end of the love chapter, we get these words that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. I love the fact that the love of God, even though there, we have boundaries in our unconditional love, we have ways that we express differently to people our unconditional love. And yet Paul still writes to the Corinthian church. He says, listen, when it comes to loving people, you've got, there's things that you've got to bear, you've got to believe, you've got to hope, and you've got to be ready to endure. I love the passion translation. It says this, love is a safe place of shelter for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as a defeat for it never gives up. I love that. That love is a safe place and it never stops believing the best for others. See, this is telling me that we have to stop dictating what other people are thinking and take our hearts to the woodshed, so to speak, and say, God, touch my heart, challenge my heart before I begin to dictate someone else's thinking. That leads me to number two. As you deal with your heart, refuse to allow any area of your life to remain unsurrendered. When it comes to your heart, and as you examine your heart, refuse to allow areas of your life, areas of your heart to remain unsurrendered. You wanna know what the Bible calls a people that remain part, like partially surrendered, but partially unsurrendered? A, a, a cake half-baked. I was gonna say it makes you sound half-baked, but that's a different terminology nowadays. This is awesome. He, um, Hosea chapter 10, excuse me, verse, uh, chapter seven, verses eight through nine says this. Ephraim, this is some of the people of Israel, mixes himself with peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hair sprinkle upon him and he knows it not. It's so, it sounds so weird. He is a cake half baked. Think of it like a pancake. And how many of us know that when you make a pancake, when it's fully cooked on one side, you see the bubbles come up on the other side. Uh, I don't know if you've ever eaten a half-baked pancake? I hope not. It's disgusting. But this is how the prophet was describing a group of people that were partially committed to the Lord, half committed to the Lord. It said there are areas of your life that are not, that are not baked through portions that are not exposed to God. And it makes the statement that there are strangers that will devour your strength and not know it and gray hair sprinkled strangers. In other words, other people, other people you're making judgments about are gonna claim something from you and you won't even realize it. And gray hair, so what's gray hair representing? It's, it's representing we're, we're getting older. Like life is fleeting. That you're losing out on life and you don't even know it. This is what cynicism does. It's a sign of, our adventure say that cynicism is a sign of unsurrendered things in our hearts. And what ends up doing is strangers begin to take things from us and we don't even realize it. 
And then on top of that, the gray hair, I'm getting a ton of gray hair in my beard. Gray hair is just simple that life is fleeting. And some of us, we are allowing cynicism to pour life and to pull life from us. And some of us don't even realize it. Number three, third thing I want you to do is this. After you checked your heart and surrendered things out, ask for clarification. If you don't know what somebody meant, ask for clarification. Don't make up things in your mind. Don't talk to five people about them that do not include that person. Uh, don't post it on social media. I wonder what this friend that goes unnamed is thinking about this. Or what do you all think about this scenario? And in reality, you should just go straight to the source. We are a Matthew 18 church, which means if you've got an issue with somebody, don't come to me about them. You go to them and ask them. Number four, lastly. Remember this, that one does not include, does not equal everyone. One doesn't equal everyone. Don't make one person become everyone in your mind. Let me bring this into my world because I get a lot of people that come to this church and they've been hurt by pastors. And something that I will say quite often is this, don't let one pastor's, uh, one pastor's issues dictate every pastor that you've ever met in your life. Don't let one brand or group or whatever type of person that you have categorized dictate every single person that has ever that will ever include be included in your life because one person hurts you doesn't mean everybody just because uh innocent people are around you you don't have to see them as being vicious because one vicious person hurts you don't penalize everybody because of one person's actions michael kensley says this the cheap pleasures of cynicism are always in plentiful supply. Abandoning them is like going on a diet or giving up smoking. Hope, in other words, is the one thing that takes work. So the question is, is how do we get our hope back? How do we get our hope groove back on? I honestly think it's really quite simple. It's just incredibly tough to do. It begins by exposing that cynical heart to the Lord and beginning to work back in. I love what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, um, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my thoughts and every movement in my heart be pure and pleasing, acceptable before your eyes, my only redeemer and my protector, God. How do we deal with cynicism? We begin to expose our hearts back to God and we ask God, help us begin to work the hope back in. Some of you, because maybe you've never made bread before in your life, one of the most crucial parts of a process of making bread is what's called the kneading process. And what you do, you take that dough and you start kneading it. And what you're doing as you're kneading it is you're beginning to work the glutens and you're stretching the glutens to get throughout the bread, to get a lighter bread, to get puffier bread, to have a better tasting bread, a better textured bread. And for some of us today, that we can't just assume that, okay, God, I surrender to you and I walk away and I do nothing. The goal of today is this, is that God, we are going to invite you in but we're also gonna do the work this week, the work we're gonna need through, that every time a, a person comes up in our newsfeed that we immediately wanna be cynical, we're saying, God, we're gonna, be gonna, be, we're gonna start working hope into the situation. Every time that something, a thought comes in our brain in the middle of the night or even in our work day or throughout our days we're driving and that thought wants to take us into a place of cynicism toward a person or toward a people, what are we gonna do? We're gonna start needing hope back in. And we're gonna allow that needing to begin to stretch through and begin to develop a lighter burden and a new narrative. And we're gonna see hope rise all over again. We're gonna see hope happen. 
not because that we have chased away cynicism, we've allowed the spirit of God to bring hope. And we've allowed ourselves to put it back to work. Bow your heads with me. I'm done yakking. The words that Pastor Abby sang today about speaking to our hopelessness is so, so relevant for where we're at. We need to be a people of hope. And maybe you're here today and maybe you just came in today and you are without hope. I'm glad that you've shown up or I'm glad that you're, you're watching on our live stream today. And maybe you have walked into the sanctuary here or you've clicked on and maybe you yourself, you have just found yourself in a place where you have, you feel like you have no hope in life, period. Maybe you heard me talking about the big T truth and maybe you've clinged to everybody else's truth but you've never actually put your trust in the truth who's Jesus Christ himself. And if you're here today and you are not in a relationship with God, maybe you're in a place today where you've never had a connection to true hope found in Christ, but you're realizing that today you're ready for that big step. You're ready for hope. You're ready for a relationship with God. I had a phone call from a former student yesterday just confessing that I just, my relationship with God just hasn't been right. God responds to honesty. He responds to an honest heart. If you're here today and you're not in relationship with God, but you're ready to take that step, maybe you have wandered from your relationship with God and you need to take a step back and put your trust in him. If that's you, could you just slip up your hand? No one's looking around. I just want to give opportunity. Thank you, bud. Thank you, man. Just looking around. Just a few seconds here. If you lift up your hand or maybe you're watching from home today, and you're ready for that step, would you do me a favor? Would you pray? And I'll, in fact, I'll give you the words to pray right here, right now. Jesus, today I put my hope in you. Today I trust you with my life. Just say that to him. Today I trust you with my life. I know I'm broken. I know I'm a sinner. And today is gonna be a new day for me because I leave an old life behind. And I step into a new hope in Jesus, a new life in you. And Lord, I pray over these two individuals here and even over the maybe others that are watching. I pray that Lord, hope would just invade hearts and begin to work through in their thinking, in their feeling, in their daily lives and their work and their school and whatever realms that they find themselves in, I pray that hope would manifest. And Lord, what I also pray over our church body, over everyone who would hear this message, that you would deal with all of us. Search our hearts, oh God. Search all of us. Search me, oh God. Convict us when we have dictated people's narratives based upon our assumption about their thinking and writing people's stories and, and living in this confirmation bias that it just made judgment calls instead of maybe looking at something objectively and instead of maybe understanding a little bit more. God, help us 
that every area of our life, our our thinking in our hearts, our thinking in our feelings, that we would not be a half-baked piece of bread, God, that we would be a people that would have been completely exposed to the work and the presence of the Spirit of God, that our lives would be fully surrendered, and then in turn be a people that would work hope constantly in and through everything that we do and everything that we are. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for touching our lives and showing yourself as the hope of this world. Help us to be that hope, to live it and to operate it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, give and give God glory for two people giving their lives to Jesus this morning.